ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cat Guys Podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a community that's so many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. And it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing to talk about the industry events, and to talk to the people who create these games. Now, I went to Australia's largest game convention last weekend, HangCon in Canberra, and had a wonderful time. And if you've listened to the last episode of the show, I had a nice conversation with our good buddy, Pete West, um, who was a player at this year's Bulldog event, and I talked about my experiences as a player in the Marvel event, and we sort of compared the events from our perspective as players. And we talked about Pancon as a whole, and it's a lovely relationship. Well, I put that up on Monday, and since then, I have gotten a lot of feedback from you, the listeners, who wanted more about Pancon. Now, specifically the both of Now, we don't want red we'll be putting out because they've said repeatedly at this point that they will be doing a CanCon analysis show. I think they're going to talk about the, um, the, the number of unit types and list and work out some percentages and give people the idea of what people were running for the event. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that would be, you know, for the Australian meta because this event went in a different direction than a lot of events in Australia. But in the same token, it did represent sort of what we see at more of a harder end of the Australian spectrum, if that makes sense. But the feedback that I got specifically had a lot of questions that if I could talk about the winning lists, um, I know that there are several bolt action YouTube channels and podcasts that talk about, you know, the, the top lists at events. And so rather than me just pulling these lists and talking about them as some voice in the ether, I thought I would go a step further and talk to the people who ran them. Not only that, but I've had a lot of questions about the terrain because we talked about it at length in the last uh, episode and a few other elements of uh, the bolt action event at CanCon. As someone who did not play in it, I played next to it. I thought it would be a good idea to invite a couple of people who did play and who did very well. So without further ado, I would like to introduce today's guest. We have last year's winner of CanCon and this year's winner of CanCon, as in the same person, uh, our buddy Aaron Russell. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, Brad. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Mate, you've been to two CanCons and you've won two CanCons. That's a hell of accomplishment, man. Congratulations. Cheers. Yeah, pretty, pretty fortunate. Right on. And we have another guest who was hot on his heels and came second at CanCon this year, a man who is no stranger to bolt action events in Australia, a man who's weirdly never been on the show, and yet I've been meaning to talk to him about coming on for quite a while. Jason Drain, welcome to Cast Ice. How you doing, man? Yeah, I'm pretty good, Brad. Thanks for having me. It is lovely to have both of you. Um, now, gentlemen, CanCon 2023 as we said in the last episode, was a really big deal for the Australian wargaming scene, not just bolt action, 
I mean, CanCon's always been our biggest gaming convention in Australia. In the last couple of years between COVID lockdowns and COVID outbreaks and COVID in general, um, people, staff at CanCon were saying that numbers had significantly dropped. And the last time there was a quote unquote big CanCon was 2019. Um, now, not to say there weren't big events at CanCon the last couple of years, but the number of feet in the door was significantly less until now. 2023 was a return to form because CanCon traditionally had gotten sort of bigger every year. And what made it particularly special this year was over the last couple of years, some of the biggest events that had previously run at CanCon, Warhammer 40,000, Kings of War, had jumped ship to other venues the same weekend, sort of adjacent to the CanCon main hall at Epic. It, it's really exciting to see CanCon back. Um, Jason, you've been to CanCon way more than I have, and I've been to CanCon a lot. Um, how good was it to see that CanCon was sort of, in gaming in general, is back in Australia? Yeah, well, CanCon this year really impressed me. It was fantastic. I really like to see the amount of role-playing that's come back to CanCon. Yeah. Uh, since I started role-playing at CanCon in the 90s, like early 90s, so late 80s maybe, but long time ago. Um, and then just, you know, like an entire hall of vendors. It was great. It was really good, really good one. And the secondhand stall. Now, I haven't been to CanCon in about six years. So for me to come to CanCon this year and to see the secondhand quote-unquote stall had its own building was wild. I mean, there was over a two-hour wait to get into that um, between games on the Saturday, and I ran over to grab things from a friend. Couldn't, I mean, we had like 20 minutes for lunch, so I had to turn around and run back. I was able to get in the second day, but it had been, you know, picked over like a, like a, I don't know, a herd of jackals had been through it. Uh, but it it was really exciting to see on the second day. Lord knows what it had been like on the first day. Uh, Aaron, Jason, did you guys have a chance to get over to that? Aaron? No. No, <laughs> I, I did not. I definitely didn't. I did hear about the line, and I thought there is no way I, I'm going to have the time to wait in line for two hours. So I would have loved to, and I'd planned to, but uh, that, that sort of made it a bit difficult. Yeah, seeing that line was wild. And if you were playing in an event, unless you significantly won or lost a game and there was a lunch break at the other end, I don't know how you could have gotten there. Um, mm. Yeah. But I think that also says a lot about just the number of people that came to hang out and watch. And there were participation games. And as Jason said, the role-playing aspect, I had a couple friends who came and signed up for role-playing sessions ran for significant periods of time, but also mm. meant that they had longer breaks. Um, I also think that depending on what magic event, I think there was more time there. But the traditional war gamers were often locked up on that Saturday in particular. Um, but in general, I mean, Aaron, what was your thought about CanCon this year? It seemed to be, you know, pretty special, right? Yeah, it was definitely buzzing. Um... I, I really enjoy going around and seeing all the other different systems and, you know, seeing um, seeing terrain on the table and that sort of thing. Um, obviously pretty fortunate with Bold Action. I'm sure we'll get to that soon. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. 
But uh, in fact, that's how I got into bowl action. Was walking around seeing other game systems, and I, I was well, well, well. I guess we'll touch on that soon. But yeah, it was. Uh, I, it was buzzing. Definitely buzzing. Yeah. yeah, it was good. And the I don't know if you guys had a chance to walk by the two fat lardies section of CanCon this year, where they were running demo games and running big games. But man, talk about terrain, and that was truly special stuff. Yeah, there's no, a couple of really gifted terrain builders in that community. Yeah. yeah. I, I could not believe the level of hobby that went in on that. It was straight up uh, Actar in Tasmania levels of amazing terrain. It it was truly outrageously good. Um, and that is I a compliment. I wanted to push them out of the way and play some bolt action on it, but uh, I think that's a little game system... Uh, envy slash rivalry going on there but you know <laughs> worse things have happened um now i want to say that one of my favorite things that one of my favorite parts of going to cancon is seeing friends again and i mean i mentioned it on the last show but i want to mention it again it was so wonderful to walk into cancon and see people i hadn't seen in a decade see people that I used to see every single year at CanCon or at other events, um, because it really is a gathering place for gamers of all sorts of game systems. And tons of my friends from the old Warhammer, 40K, Fantasy, you know, uh, Malifaux days, um, even Bolt Action had sort of, you know, gamers tend to, you know, go do gamery things in other systems from time to time. And, uh, you know, people had migrated to all these different game systems. But I, you know, just walking through CanCon, I got to see friends at the Warmaster event, the Fantasy Sixth Ed event, the Age of Sigmar event, the Infinity event, the Team Yankee event, tons of games, half of which I've never played. But to, to know a significant number of the field only because, you know, people jump from system to system. It was just so nice to see so many familiar faces. Um, I do have to give a special shout out to Richard Bright, who was playing in the Bolt Action event because he showed up. And we've been talking online for a long time, years. And he had been promising uh, a deck of the old Citadel battle cards, um, knowing that I love the old 40K art and the old 40K models. Um, he had found it in a drawer somewhere or in a box, and uh, he gave them to me to to put on my shelf. And I I think I've talked my wife into playing a game. We'll see how we go. Um, if not, I, I'm going to have some friends over to play games in a couple of weeks. I'm definitely going to pull them out. But it was – I mean, that's just an example of being able to see someone. Now, the problem is when you're playing games, and maybe you guys know this feeling as well, between games – you have a little bit of time to chat to people, but often those people are playing games. And then when they come to talk to you, you're playing a game. So you don't really, you know, it's nice to wave and to shake hands and maybe do a hug, but yeah, there wasn't tons of time to socialize. And to anyone who came to say, hi, I'm sorry. Um, I was, Marvel requires a lot of thought and I'm not very good at it. Um, but it, it, it was wonderful seeing everyone. Um, look, Jason, you've been there lo way longer than I have. I mean, I'm sure you know lots of people as well. Did you have the same experience? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's there's always a bunch. There was people there that I knew that I didn't see. And we, we swapped messages on Facebook. And it's like, were you at CanCon? Yes, I was at CanCon. Where were you? Mm -hmm. I was here. And we were like 50 metres apart. 
on the floor playing games and didn't catch up with each other because it's just what you just said. Yeah. I mean, Michael Cruz, coffee uh, <coughs> for the old uh, Wargamer AAU days, literally, I knew he was coming to the event. And then I thought he dropped because I didn't see him the first day until the very end of the day. Turns out he was even playing in the Marvel event. It was just so many people and so many tables. And he was behind me, like a table and a half over at one point. And I just didn't see him because it was so many people and it was so loud. And I, yeah, but you know, that's part of the appeal, right? It's the spectacle of it. Um, Aaron, you had been obviously to Kangon before because you won the previous event and it was a significant event. I'm not trying to say, you know, they had fewer numbers because it was a big event. Um, for you though, coming back to Kangon this year, did it feel any different numbers wise? Uh, I think we had more, obviously still, you know, COVID still around and stuff. So people, and obviously everyone's very mindful of being sick and not making anyone else sick. So you always expect some late withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we probably had maybe more withdrawals last year than we did this year. I think we ended up with about 60 this year, and I think there was 56 last year, I think, or somewhere between 50 to 60 last year. So, um, yeah, similar numbers. There's definitely a few more this year, though. Yeah, Definitely. And, uh, oh God, I was talking to Hari. It was, they ended up with 58 uh, at the event. And I think they, uh, maybe I'm speaking out of turn on this one, but I don't think they had any player drops on the second day. I may be making that up. That may be the Marvel event. But still, 58 players, hell of a number. Um, I think they had 62 or 63 uh, at one point. I, I know they had a couple drops before, but 58's a hell of a field, um, especially, you know, post-COVID. So it, let's, let's dig into CanCon because I want to talk about the event. Now, one of the things that we heard again and again and again uh, since the event, either from people messaging the page or on uh, the Bolt Action Australia Facebook page or just people talking was how good the terrain was at CanCon this year. Um, Hari and Tristan went just all out in creating wonderful gaming tables and anything I believe they were short on the community made up for with tables as well. Um, and of course, let's not be critical of those guys because how many tables of terrain can one person or two people or even three, I think Anthony was helping as well, bring to an event um, that has, you know, 30 tables. So it was truly amazing. Now, I had a couple of people message the page to say, yeah, the train was great, but it was a little lighter than what we're used to. Now, as I said on the previous event, um, it, uh, sorry, on the previous podcast, I don't know if that's necessarily accurate because having heard that a few times, I actually then went back to the photos and I pulled them all up. And I started scrolling through because Hari posted a picture of every single table at CanCon. And what I think we see is not just, yes, there were a few tables that had less terrain than, you know, maybe we would see at some events. I know that it was less terrain than we would have in a lot of events in Melbourne, but there's only a few of those. And what you got was a variety 
of both the terrain types you see on the tabletop and the density of the terrain. So over the course of the weekend, as you're playing five games, you're going to play on a table that's a little light on terrain. And you're going to play on a table that's really dense on terrain. And you're going to play on everything in between. Um, now, that was my impression from someone who has gone through the photos and has talked to a bunch of people. But I didn't play on these tables. Uh, Jason, let's start with you. What was your impression of the terrain? Because to me, it seemed like there was a really good variety it would suit all play styles and um, army types. Yeah, look, absolutely, Brad. But I think the most important thing to or you know, take away here with regards to terrain was Hari and Tristan turned tables of terrain away. Like I took my traveling table with me and they didn't need it because oh, wow. they asked me to, right? So Pete West brought some terrain and apparently didn't need all of his terrain. And I think there was a couple of others that had terrain turned away as well. So we're not just talking about quality tables. We're talking about enough tables that people were turned away. As a community, that's stunning. Like, right. that's just an amazing achievement for the bold action community uh, you know, here. Like, it's just it's just a fantastic thing to see. Um, and as for the terrain, look, I thought it was really good. Like, the, the, the quality of terrain, the detail, the level was fantastic. Uh, probably the only thing I would say different to what I would play on at home is I just have more like cutesy scatter bits on my tables. Yeah. You know, like, you know, little puzzle logs, that kind of stuff. But it's a, it's a convention. You don't expect that at conventions. Exactly. So, yeah, it was really good. Aaron, was that your experience as well? Yeah, definitely second that. Um, the absolute mountain of work. Went into uh, getting those battlefields laid out, but I, I, th I think the variety definitely hits the nail on the head. Um, you know, you don't want every board the same. You don't want every board to have the same amount of terrain or be all be sparse. Uh, and I think there was a lot of variety, different jungle boards, good variety of desert boards, good variety of European boards, Pacific, all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, no, none of the tables that I played on were like the one previous so um that creates a good experience and mm -hmm. yeah immersion into the game and also some different uh strategical elements as well yeah you definitely had to play differently depending on the table you were playing on which makes i which i always think makes for a better gaming experience uh, because it doesn't i mean especially over a five-day run things can sometimes get a little same samey if you end up playing on the same style of terrain all the time and this just reeked of, you know, variety and the necessity for tactical thinking and strategy. Um, if you were going to succeed on all these tables, you had to adapt to the tabletop because there was that great variety. Plus, it looked awesome. And I, I can't, uh, you know, thumbs up what uh, Jason said more. I think that speaks volumes about the Bolt Action community that not only the TOs did all that preparation to get ready, but also the community for supporting them to ensure that there was all that ready to go for Australia's big show. So yeah, man, so good. Um, well, gentlemen, let's jump a little bit to the armies that you ran. Now we'll get into the particulars of that, those armies later, but um, 
Was there a particular reason why you chose Soviets, Aaron, and why you chose British, uh, Jason? Aaron, why don't we start with you? Do you have any, how does that, because you played at Moab earlier this year, and I don't believe you played with Soviets. Um, why, why Soviets for CanCon this year? Uh, I was pretty keen to try something different. I had a Soviet starter army box that I've had for about a year and a half that I got cheap. <laughs> um, so I'd been meaning to paint it and it's taken me an awfully long time. Um, but that, that, that was the main reason. I wanted to play something different. It was the army I had that was uh, unboxed. So, um, yeah, that's sort of why I ended up with Soviets. Nice. Jason, how about you? Uh, look, I just didn't – I. I I've taken partisans and Australians, British and Germans to tournaments in the past. Mm -hmm. Didn't feel like partisans would have a, well, a snowball's chance, quite frankly. Um, and I'm just super comfortable with the British and just found that it just, yeah, just called to me for this tournament. Nice. Well, let's jump over to the events rules. Now, at this particular event, there was a set of rules and list restrictions that limited what you could take to the event listing-wise. So it was a 1,250-point bolt-action event. It was a maximum of one multi-launcher per army. You could have a maximum of two flamethrowers per army, vehicle or man-packed. Um, multiple platoons were allowed, but you could not mix reinforced platoons with theater selector platoons. So you had to stay within the context <coughs> of whatever you chose. Reinforced platoons and theater selectors only. So no armored or plank, uh, tank platoons were allowed. Um, and multinational platoons were not allowed either. Did that change what you guys were thinking listing wise going into this event or were those sort of stock standard because most of those sort of align with what we normally see in bolt action events in australia um jason i'll start with you this time uh look it didn't change much for me i didn't take a multi-launcher i've only ever done that to one tournament because as a rule i just don't like them um but i did take two flamethrowers this tournament which i usually never do because it's usually only one allowed so but other than that no not a not a lot of changes for myself now do you mind if i ask why you took two rather than one for this event uh because i wanted to try a vehicle flamethrower and was so, it good uh it was an interesting threat i always find that they tend to be more of a uh, deterrent than an actual tool, mm. if that makes sense. Um, was that your experience with this? Uh, yes, and a big target. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. Aaron, how about you? Did you um, did you find that these list restrictions changed what you were going to take at all, or did you think it was pretty stock standard? Um, it definitely made me think about things, um, mainly because... It was dual platoons were allowed, and at 12.50, even though there was no armoured <clears throat> platoons, I figured there's still probably going to be a lot of armour. Mm -hmm. um, you can still get quite a fair bit of armour into a dual platoon, and especially when you can make it a theatre selector one as well. There's quite a few theatre selectors that allow for two tanks 
um, which mm -hmm. means you could easily get four in a list, which is a tank platoon. So, I mean, I definitely took some consideration into that. I figured with dual platoons, the dice count was probably naturally going to be higher as well, um, which was why I did opt to take a multi-launcher. Um, I've only ever used one once before. Um, it was at low points games. Uh, I'd probably never use one at a game under probably 1,100. I just don't mm -hmm. think they're that um, valuable. Um, and I've never really got much out of, I didn't really get much out of mine either um, in this one. But it was mainly just there because I was figuring if there's people that are taking somewhere between 80 to 25, which I heard at one point there was going to be a 25 dice list, I figured, well, a multi-launcher will come in handy if I run up against someone with 25 units. Exactly. I think there was... I think the actual lists on the day, I think 23 was the highest. And I think Pete West had 22 uh, with the second most. Um, and I, I think there was one 23, a 22. And then I think there was quite a few 21s. But again, that is the conversation for the Bacon Burgers because they definitely know those numbers. And I haven't seen the actual list of lists, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think this necessarily was particularly wild and outrageous. Um, I did seem now speaking anecdotally, and I am looking forward to the bacon burgers episode to hear the actual numbers, but it seemed like there were more multi launchers at this event than what I'd seen previously, um, only going off of pictures. And there were, there seemed to be a lot of them. Um, was that your impression as players? Um, or is that just uh, photography bias? Do you think Aaron? <laughs> uh, I think I faced two, um, which I think is, yeah, probably more than I'd normally expect uh, to face. Um, yeah, probably. Nice. Jason? I only saw one all, tour all tournament and I took it out turn one. So, no, not really. Yeah, there you go. It, it, yep. <laughs> Again, uh, going off of uh, photography, y y it's hard to tell sometimes, isn't it? Uh, well, let's dig into the actual rule changes, because though the list restrictions were kind of stock standard for what we'd expect for an Australian event, the rules changes were different. Um, they implemented five big rule changes for the bolt action rule set for CanCon this year. Uh, the first was open top vehicles with an armor of seven or higher adjust the way they take pins from small arm fire the following way. Inexperienced vehicles will always take the pin as normal. Regular vehicles ignore the pin on a four up and veteran vehicles will always ignore the pin. So basically if you're firing small arms against an open top vehicle, it almost is though that vehicle then gets the rules as if you're shooting at an armored target in general, rather than open topped. If I'm explaining that correctly. Um, this led to a few people thinking there would be a lot of open top transports. That sort of goes hand in hand with the next rule: where soft skin vehicles were destroyed on a two-up if they received damage from any weapon with penetration value, be HE or armor piercing. A roll of a one still failed, uh, but rather than rolling on the damage chart, basically you get six on a one, fine. And a lot of people thought that might curb the use of trucks at this event. And you would see that, you know, 
on one hand, you're you're trying to make armored transports better to encourage people to take them. And on the other hand, um, you know, discourage people from taking soft skins. Now, I can't help but notice, Aaron, that you had trucks in your list. Um, and I know that Pete West mentioned uh, your truck being significant in his game. So you stuck with the truck. Um, did you think that those two rules led to a significant change in the way that people were listening to the event? Or was it just something that people took into account as they took a list that they would normally take? Uh, Aaron, what do you think? Um, I think it did a little bit, but I think what we saw um, was more uh, people taking advantage of open-topped armoured vehicles, tanks and armoured cars, as opposed to armoured transports from what I saw, um, which, yeah, I'm not sure if that was the intention with the with the rule there. Um, I think it was more to get more armoured transports. I didn't actually see many armored transports i faced one list with two bren carriers that were carrying mm -hmm. two engineer squads um but uh, outside of that i don't recall any other armored transports um but a lot of open-topped fighting vehicles um people taking werbel winds and ho rows and trying to take advantage of it that way mm -hmm. so um i think it did definitely influence some people with that but with the trucks uh, no, I'd already painted them up, so I thought I figured I needed to take them. They were in the list, mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't too concerned. I thought, well, if, if my trucks are getting shot by something that has armed penetration, they probably deserve to get blown up anyway. Yeah, exactly. Well, as someone who wrote three of the five missions they were running at CanCon, I couldn't help but notice that four of those five missions were objective based and only one was quote unquote kill points where, you know, the number of units you kill significantly matters. So it was almost as though that change dialed back the soft skin being destroyed rule a little bit because maybe uh, you could still run your trucks up, have them get your assault squads where they need to go, which is what I know what you were doing with your list, Aaron, and we'll talk about your list in depth in a minute. But, you know, once those trucks had done their job, you know, they can shrug and just say, okay, whatever, you've killed them, doesn't matter, because that that number of order dice that your opponents killed isn't a huge deal. Am I, do you, do you think that's an outrageous idea or do you think that was what a lot of people were thinking? Um, I, th I think so. Um, I definitely wasn't too concerned about the trucks in three of those missions that you mentioned, um, as long as they got the troops where they needed to be. But um, you know, it did it did leave you with some slightly less options sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, a brand carrier probably would have been better. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, Jason, what do you think? What do you think how these two rules played out? And did you see that enlisting either that you were doing for your list or um, that you saw other people using vehicles on the tabletop? Look, I think Aaron's right. I probably saw it used more in support of open-topped, uh, like armoured vehicles, tanks and armoured cars than I did in terms of um, transports. Uh, and look, I saw what I would have expected to be a normal number of like Jeeps and Kubel wagons and stuff like that. 
um and yeah maybe less trucks i'm not sure it's hard to gauge really because the opponents i played tended to be more uh kind of like big horde armies or you know that kind of stuff so mm. it's a little bit different yeah that makes sense well let's get to the next rule change uh, the suppression rule. Now, this is something that I believe the guys got from the Juggernaut player pack, which is infantry medium machine guns, not squad-based, the small teams, uh, inflict one pin on a unit when the shooting's declared, and then if they hit, they do an additional pin. Um, but you can only cause a targeted unit to suffer that suppression once per turn so you can't have a, like three medium machine guns and then put six pins on a unit for example um this is a rule that talking to people over the course of the weekend that they loved they thought this was great and it really encouraged people to bring medium machine gun teams and apparently there were more medium machine gun teams than normal at this event again you'd have to ask the the tos because they have all the lists and they'll be doing the meta analysis but was that your impression as well guys um jason we'll start with you this time yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, that particular rule got me to go and buy a Vickers machine gun team for my list because I've never owned an actual green painted British Army Vickers machine gun team. So, and I have no regrets taking it. It was a really good addition. And did you think that that rule, I mean, clearly you said it was a really good addition. It really did make a difference on the tabletop. Yeah, it makes the machine gun teams usable and makes them feel more historically accurate. They're doing what they're supposed to do, control an area, suppress. Um, you know, you feel like you're getting better value out of those points uh, and it gave you some tactical options, which was really interesting to play on the table and really fun to play. Brilliant. Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely loved it. Um, it gives... Most team weapons in bold action have a unique ability of some kind um, and it makes the MMG relevant, I think, and it just gives it that little boost that everyone's looking for. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, it's crazy overpowered, but it definitely makes the MMG um, viable for sure. And, yeah, I like it. It's a really cool mechanic and um, suppression makes sense. Um, so... Yeah, I think it's it's great uh, and probably the best uh, solution to the MMG that I've heard of any so far. Um, mm. So, yeah, I quite liked it. Nice. Well, light machine guns were also being used a lot more at this event, and that's because there was a light machine gun change. A squad that is selected at full strength and has at least 10 men um, and to be considered full strength could take a squad integrated LMG at no additional cost. For example, a Siberian squad would have to take all 12 men to qualify. A partisan squad would have to take 20 men in order to qualify. Conversely, a CC recon team would not qualify because the maximum number of dudes you can have in that squad is nine, um, if that makes sense. There's a sub clause to this saying that LMGs taken by motorcycle infantry squads can fire as part of the advance order. Aaron, um, did you think that this rule changed the way people were listing as far as unit sizes and or the light machine guns, were they being used? Definitely. Um, 
I think every single person I played had a free light machine gun or at least one or two. Um, so, yeah, de definitely did. I actually didn't have any free light machine guns, um, mainly because <laughs> the squads I were running weren't able to actually take them. So it didn't matter that they were full strength or not, they couldn't physically have one. So um, I wasn't prepared to go buy a, another box and paint up another 10 men to get a unit just to get a free LMG. So, um, yeah, no, no freebies there. But uh, yeah, there was it, a lot. It did... It did prevent mid-maxing. Well, it didn't. It encouraged people to not min-max in their list, I should say, not prevent. Um, but if you were running a list that ran a lot of units, like you were, spoilers, um, with scouts and with assault engineers and other um, specialist Soviet units, you weren't able to get an LMG full stop. So, yeah, I could see that being an issue for you. Jason, what about you? Uh, I used the real, so I had uh i had two regular british squads with the free light machine guns most of my opponents did as well it was pretty common i think um yeah no i, I kind of agree with aaron i think it d does encourage that kind of uh larger squad size um people were probably you know making adjustments to their list to get that which means they're you know costing themselves points somewhere else to get those extra couple of guys in um yeah, look, I thought it was a good change. It worked. Yeah, there you go. The the last list I played had 10 free LMGs. Ooh. What? Yeah, 10 free LMGs. So they had free 200 free points. At yeah, they had 10, 10 squads, 10 full-strength squads, all with a free LMG. Okay, you got to talk about that list because I don't have that in front of me. Please talk to us about what what na what nation is that? First of all, and uh, second of German. all, the Germans. Okay, uh, talk to us about what was in the army in general. Was it someone who literally overinvested uh, in particular units to take advantage of that rule? Uh, I think so. Um, I'm not exactly sure on the intention. They were uh, well. Yeah, I would say that was probably the case. They were Ostrupen or Volkstrom, mm -hmm. one of the two. Um, and I think, so they were costing and they were sh shirkers. I think all of them were shirkers. So yeah. 10 shirker Ostrupen or Volkstrom, one of the two, um, all full strength with an LMG. So actually wasn't the craziest idea I've ever heard. It was actually worked yeah. quite well. I've faced that list without the LMGs and man, that makes that list have a lot more teeth and or options available to it. That's a cool idea. I hadn't thought of that. That's <laughs> Jason, did you face that list too? No, I didn't. Are you glad no. you didn't face that list? I don't want to HE. I'm good. <laughs> right on. Well, before we get into the list themselves, I did mention earlier that this was a, an event that was geared a little bit more competitively than um, some other events. Now, um, Running up to the event, there was discussion of this being, um, you know, the player pack itself said it's something like, um, put your best foot forward, um, come out swinging, um, be competitive. Uh, but then the guys on the Bacon Burger cast um, clarified and said very clearly, no, this is still within the context of the Australian meta. Um, but 
you know, this is still a competitive competitive event. Did the rule changes, the list requirements, and the 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 intention of the TOs, did that play into your lists? Uh, as one final question before we actually get into your lists themselves. Um, Jason, I'll start with you. Um, what were your thoughts? Uh, look, I definitely did try to make uses of many of the real changes as I could. So, you know, I chose I chose an army trying to do that thing I always like to do, which is balance competitiveness with something of historical accuracy mm -hmm. um, and, you know, trying to fit something in that, that made use of that. Um, but it wasn't so much their decisions. I was going out to try and build a list that could kill stubborn infantry. So. Right on. Yeah. Aaron, how about you? Um, yeah, I tried to mix in a few different things. Um, I was figuring that there was going to be some, a whole range of unit amounts, anywhere from, I was expecting anywhere from 14 to 25. Um, so I kind of wanted to at least be able to deal with the 20 plus dice lists, um, but without taking... 20 plus dice myself i still had quite high a lot higher than um, i did last year but um yeah i just didn't want to be completely uh outnumbered um in quantity but uh be, just be able to deal with those those high dice lists so i kind of prepared for that a little bit and i was sort of keen to play what i painted and, um uh and yeah and, and in historical i don't really like I don't think I've ever run anything that at least wasn't by the year. Yeah. Um, I had some bomb dog teams painted up and they obviously aren't 1945, so I couldn't use those. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, that was sort of probably the main consideration and also vehicles not being able to contest um, definitely come into um, consideration for me when I was sort of preparing for to put this together. Now, is that something that you guys normally have vehicles that do contest? Because I know, and that might just be a regional difference because in Melbourne, they never do. Um, do they, is that something you commonly see in events that you play? Um, I think that it's usually subject to mission. I think yeah. at Moab from memory, it was subject to mission. So there are a couple of missions that didn't, uh, they couldn't contest and a couple they could. Uh, but I think it's actually a huge, uh, it has huge implications on the game um, and the mission. So, yeah, just sort of preparing for that. Brilliant. Well, let's get into the lists themselves. Now, I do want to talk about missions, and we'll do that in a second as well. Um, but I want to talk about your list first so that you we have a context of how we're having this conversation. And I do want to talk about how the event was run, and I think that might be a good way to finish. So if you're listening, those are coming. Those are the talking points. But let's get into the lists themselves. So starting with, we have an eighth army list, Jason, where this is you. This is the number two list at CanCon this year. Um, I'll read it out, and then I have a series of questions for you. We had a second lieutenant, a regular, we had two regular 10-man squads, um, 
one of them had one submachine gun. We had the free Artie Observer who had a bonus regular friend added. Um, we had a first airborne division paratroop from the Sicily and Italy book, which was veteran. Um, that was, if I'm reading this right, a five man stubborn squad with submachine guns. Mm -hmm. We had a medium machine gun team regular. We had a medium mortar team regular. We had a regular light mortar. We had a sniper team veteran, uh, a regular uh, flamethrower and Piot team. We had the national characteristic of vengeance. We had two light artillery pieces. We had a Humber armored car, um, which for those not sure which one that is, it was the Mark II, which has the turret mounted um, auto cannon, light auto cannon, and a coax MMG. We had the M3A1 Stuart III. This is not the DACA Stuart. This is, however, what American players would call the Satan because it was the Stuart that did have the flamethrower. Um, we had another one that didn't have the flamethrower that just had the light AT gun with the coax MMG and then the forward hull MMG. Um, we had an M3 scout car that had just the forward-facing HMG without the sponsons and a Jeep. And that is the list. Um, Jason, talk to us a little bit about the idea behind your list and both maybe historically and tactically, what was your game plan going in with this list? Uh, look, historically it's straight out of the soft underbelly book. So, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like that. Um, I was looking for a way of dealing with stubborn infantry because I'm finding personally that stubborn infantry is what I lose games to. Mm-hmm um usually anyway uh so i was looking for ways of doing that without kind of joining the meta of having a lot of stubborn infantry yeah. so looking for ways to um you know destroy it so what's a hu um the other thing was i don't normally take a lot of indirect fire i might in a british list i might have a 25 pounder mm -hmm. um maybe a light mortar in my german lists i don't take artillery at all for the most part usually um and so i wanted to kind of experiment with that indirect fire kind of model and see how i could go with that so. it sounds like it went well for you at this event because you came second or did you feel like that was a mechanic that maybe was negligible in this particular case and you just happened to do well and have that in your list um look i don't know that the the indirect fire is interesting because it tends to push people around a little bit so that mm. helps um, it's more about that. I mean, it's nice when it kills something, but it doesn't kill that much and that often. So uh, I guess it was more just having like effectively three uh, three units that could cover a good chunk of the board was really interesting. So Nice. Now, was there anything that you, I mean, clearly you've already said the indirect firing, but was there anything in, that you went in thinking, I definitely need to include this in my list? Uh, yeah, the two flamethrowers. Just one, I want to experiment with vehicle flamethrowers because I don't usually take them. And mm -hmm. I expected to see heaps of stubborn infantry at this mm -hmm. thing, being objective-based, sitting stubborn infantry on objectives. Um, so I figured, look, if I'm not 
taking stubborn infantry flamethrowers tend to be the best way to kill them so mm -hmm. i was trying that and do you think that that paid off for you uh not really no um i think my flamethrower tank took out a sherman which was really lovely absolutely yeah. absolutely lovely um uh, my man pack flamethrower uh took out pete west panzer four in our last game which was also lovely and other yeah. than that they didn't do huge amounts for me okay and do you think you saw a lot of stubborn at this event i know you were planning for it but did you actually see it on the tabletop as mm, you were going? not as much as i expected okay all right um aaron did you have any thoughts about jason's list having heard it uh i, I am curious because i when, when i did see your list i i was um very curious how you if you had any challenges capturing objectives because you've got three squads there and obviously a lot of small teams with the small teams just doing a lot of work getting on objectives late or how did you sort of handle the three objective missions yeah look my small teams always do a lot of work especially in my british army so you know like like mortar teams are actually there just to annoy people and capture objectives that's what they do um same with uh same with the forward observer that's you know they're off capturing whatever objectives are on my side of the table that's the small team's jobs so yeah and when you were playing with your white scout car was that more of a zip around and put pins on vehicles in particular places or was that more of a uh, a transportation device uh usually loaded the little airborne squad into them and it was purely situational so it totally depended on the opponent the board what i could get around to how much cover there was that kind of stuff there you go there you go yeah i my thoughts looking at this list were oh my god you don't have enough guys uh but clearly you did because you did quite well at this event and as you say it is a play style of leaning into that small team um and clearly you did very well with this so um i think this leans into your particular play style uh for this army and clearly you did well with it if you could change something in this army now if you knew what you knew now going into the event, what would you have changed about this army going in? No, I don't think I would have changed too much. I'd love to have taken a staghound instead of the Humber, um, mm -hmm. but I just didn't have quite have the points for it. Uh, although I could have probably, I mean, if I wanted to be a little bit more competitive, I could have dropped my officer to inexperience, picked up a few more points and squeezed stuff around. Mm -hmm. um, and probably that's the change I would make would just be, you know, drop that team experience, which would give me some points elsewhere just to spend some, um, you know, just kind of polishing up a, another unit somewhere. All right. Right on. Well, let's look at the other list, shall we? Uh, now, with this list, we have it's a Soviet reinforced platoon. Um, and this is the first place list. This is Aaron's list. We have an inexperienced junior officer. Uh, no friends with him. We have a veteran squad with uh, five guys, all with submachine guns. One guy has a Panzerfaust. Then there's an assault engineer squad, again, veteran, that has um, one guy with a rifle, 
an NCO with a submachine gun, two additional submachine gun guys, and a flamethrower guy. So that makes for five guys in total, one flamethrower, three SMGs, two Panzerfausts. We have a forward artillery observer, and I have questions about that. Uh, for 100 points, it's regular. We have a Shrefbat squad, inexperienced, for 23 points. That was, if I'm reading this right, eight guys um, that have shirkers. Um, we have the free rifleman squad, 12 dudes with anti-tank grenade, uh, anti grenades with green. We have a heavy mortar team, a regular. We have a regular sniper team. We have an inexperienced light howitzer. We have a recce car uh, carrier, which is the, um, the Bren carrier that the Soviets can take with the dual MMGs, one forward-facing, one in a pintle mount. We had the quote-unquote DACA Stuart, which, has, which is the Stuart that has the light AT gun with a coax MMG, forward-facing, hull-mounted MMG, and then another two forward-facing LMGs. Sorry, MMG was the other one, and then two additional LMGs. Ugh, I always say that wrong. Um, we had a regular truck with no machine gun, uh, and then we had a regular truck with a machine gun. And that's the first platoon. Second platoon was another inexperienced officer with no friends. We had a five-man Soviet scout unit with five submachine guns. We had another assault engineer squad. This time had one less SMG, um, but is otherwise the same. So had uh, two SMGs, two rifles, and a flamethrower with two Panzerfausts. We also had another regular sniper and then we had another thing I want to ask you about, the M30 Super Multi-Launcher, uh, which is very rarely seen, which I, I, I love that you have. And then another recce carrier, which is a universal carrier with recce that, again, had a forward LMG and a pintle-mounted LMG. Uh, Aaron, I have lots of questions but before we get dug in, can you talk to us a little bit about what was going on with this list? Like, what were your historical thoughts with the list and or thoughts running it on the tabletop? What was your game plan? Uh, so it's 1945, and we're uh, now in enemy territory, heading towards Berlin, mustering all we can, basically. Um but also wanted to just use a few things that are a bit quirky that no one that I've never used before, um, that I've never seen used before. Um, and, but I also wanted, I'm used to playing uh, British. Um, so I wanted the transition into this army that I was going to play um, to maybe not be too rough. Uh, I didn't actually get any practice games with this. Um, I finished painting it on uh, like Thursday <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, before CanCon, and I, I didn't get any any games. So I, my first ever Soviet game was round one, but I didn't. So I didn't want the. I know I knew that going into it, so I didn't want the transition to be too rough um, for me. Um, uh, yeah, but I think like last year I only had fifteen dice. And I had lots of armor um, and infantry, and I had barely any support weapons. Um, 
but going to this one, vehicles couldn't contest objectives in three of the missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I decided to not go as vehicle heavy. Um, uh, that was probably my, my line of thinking, but I also wanted to be able to handle high dice count lists and also all the missions um, bar two, uh, sorry, bar one, which had prep bombardment, meant that you had to have at least half of your army off the table. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really want to have a bunch of units that were coming on table turn three, turn four, or maybe never. Um, so they were probably the main considerations, but yeah, also wanted to stick with the late war theme as well. So now I, I said I was going to mention a couple things. And so here we go. Uh, let's talk about the Ford observer. Observers aren't something you see in a lot of Soviet history, particularly at the quote unquote. Yeah, uh, I guess it was part of just trying to transition from a British list to a Soviet list, because um, obviously you always get the free one in a British list. Um, so I always kind of factored that into my plan when I was playing British. So I thought, well, maybe that makes for an easy transition. And well, Soviets also get the mass barrage uh, rule, like you said, so maybe that'll come in handy and make it a little bit more reliable. Um, if I, I, it, it didn't actually do much. Um, the plans for it never really come to fruition, uh, but that can ha- that's what happens sometimes with an Arty Observer. Uh, I probably wouldn't pay 100 points for it competitively again. Um, uh, but yeah, it was probably more about the transition. Nice. Well, you have a Shraf Bat squad, which had the Shirkers rule. Now in a recent FAQ, Shirkers got quote unquote, significantly nerfed. Um, and I heard many competitive players bemoaning Shirkers, uh, being used at all anymore. They're, they're too bad now to use. And yet here you are using them. Um, did they do all right for you on the table? Were you happy with them? Or were they one of those things that, you know, maybe post quote unquote nerf, they're not a thing anymore? Um, I like them. Uh, I think they were handy um, and they were funny. <laughs> they were a fun unit to have because they spent most of the game disobeying orders and going down. Um, my yep. plan was for the enemy to shoot at them. No one ever shot at them. So, um, unfortunately, apparently guys wielding shovels isn't very threatening. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, they, I don't know how much use I got out of it. Actually, one game they caught, they captured an objective. So yeah. they probably paid for themselves there. But, um, yeah, they probably – I would take them again, definitely. Um, I mean, if, if no one ever shoots them, then – they're never going to get pinned out anyway. So 
Yeah, exactly. I don't know why no one, no one, no one, shot, no one wanted to shoot at them. Um, but yeah, I, li- I liked them, and they were a funny unit because they just literally kept failing order tests every turn. <laughs> you gotta laugh with a unit like that, or you'll go mad. You know, yelling at your dice and yelling at your, di- you know, units on the tabletop. Um, let's talk about another unit that is uh, a little controversial, uh, which is the M three multi-launcher it's the sorry the m30 multi-launcher it is the only heavy rocket launcher in the game so it is a multi-launcher on steroids when it hits it wrecks face it is a four inch he template however it only fires every other turn and you have to pass an order test with a pin to reload it am i getting those rules right um, yeah, so you have once you fire, you take D3 pins and you can only shoot the turn after you pass a successful or rally test. So even if you don't shed all the pins, you can still try, but you might still be pinned and then you might go down anyway. So yeah, it's a bit of a funny one. <laughs> now, knowing that the missions in this had a maximum of seven turns for all of them, which means you're going to fire this three times in a game if you're lucky. Um, did you get to fire? Like, did you find that D3 pins and then having to pass a check and then, you know, all of these hurdles to jump through to be able to fire this massive gun? Do you think it paid off? Did how, how was your experience using it? Because I've wanted to use one of these for years and people tell me I'm nuts and to never take it. Um, I've talked about these things for years. I think they're amazing looking. Uh, what was your experience with them? Because I, I want to know. It was probably my funnest unit. Um, I had a ball using it. It was an absolute laugh. I got to laugh at it, and my opponents laughed at me as well. Uh, I was averaging one shot a game. Um, I killed Ouch. one AT rifle. Ouch. That's it. Okay. An anti-tank rifle was all I killed in, in five games. So uh, is it worth it? Probably not, but is it fun? Definitely. And it's still scary. Like people would, you could see people sweating bullets until it fired and then it pinned itself and then they're just laughing at you. So or laughing with you, I should say. Um, yeah, exactly. I yeah. I'm miss, missing my shots with it and then rolling six to pin myself. So oh. I was more often than not D3 pinning myself. But um, it was it was a fun, really fun unit. Um is it as good as a Katusha? Definitely not. Is it more fun than Katusha? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> exactly, right? Well, let's let's talk about the now we did talk earlier about the the national rule or sorry, the event rules um changing the way that armored transports work. Now, you were running two recce carriers. Now, technically those aren't transports. They are recce vehicles. Um, but they are open topped. And you ran, if memory, at least one of them is veteran. I believe both of them is veteran. So you basically, for 82 points, got a recce tracked vehicle that ignored its open top rules against small arms that had two LMGs that you could pin sprinkle with. And as someone who runs an Indian, Indian carrier list, with all these in it, except wield, um, being able to not have those open topped against rifles and SMGs is my idea of heaven. 
Um, was were they pretty good on the tabletop for this event, given that the rules leaned into how they worked, or were they sort of meh? What what was your experience with them? Um, no, I got out of them what what uh, what was on the box. Um, they did the job intended, and I yeah, that's why I made them veteran, make the most of the rules that they made, and also to give myself a little bit more um, reliability when coming on the table. Because there were going to be a few missions where they were going to be probably starting off the board. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't want to spend three turns trying to bring my my armor on the board. So, yeah, the veteran, I think, paid off there. Um, and they confused a lot of people as well. Uh, every single game I played, um, I probably got asked maybe four or five times, that's right. They're not a transport, are they? That, what are they? They're not carrying anything, are they? So, mm -hmm. um, no matter how many times I said it, <laughs> they, they, everyone kept forgetting. So, um, mainly because no one's ever seen them before. Everyone said, "I've never seen them as an armored car. I've only ever seen them as a transport." So, I think they kept uh, confusing people. But um, uh, yeah, no, they were they were quite good. They just worked in tandem. Brilliant. Well, let's let's ask you some of the questions that I asked Jason before. When you, I mean, obviously, you were trying to make a list that leaned from a, being a, uh, normally a British player into a Soviet player. So you took a few things across that. I mean, you can see some parallels in <laughs> Bren carriers, uh, M3s, Arty uh, observers, and that sort of thing. Um, but were there other things that you wanted to lean into that you thought were non-negotiable going into this event that you really wanted in your list? Oh, um, that is a good question. Well, the strap bat, <laughs> definitely. That was a non-negotiable. They had to go in there. I was really keen to uh, get them onto the table. Just dudes, the idea of guys running around without weapons mm -hmm. um, and shovels and just carrying ammo cases and stuff was, was, uh, yeah, a bit comical for me. So they were definitely non-negotiable. Um, uh, um, did now the DACA Stewart, was that controversial at all? Because I know that a lot of people here get really kind of wigged out when the all machine gun little tank appears on the tabletop. Um, did, did people give you a hairy eyeball with that one or did they think uh, it made sense in the context of the event slash your list? Yeah, I think so. Um, I've never actually used one before. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it, I didn't, if, if I could change it and I was really wanting to play, um, you know, as competitive as possible, I'd probably put a pintle on it. I didn't have the pintle on it. So it was only the 18 shots instead of the 23. And I could only pick two targets or one target if using the main gun. So it wasn't sprinkling out as many pins as it probably could have, which was probably a mistake on my part. Um, it didn't really do a lot. And I don't think a lot of people were scared of it either, to be honest. Um, only 18 shots. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're close on that. Yeah. <laughs> it's still, it's still yeah. a lot of firepower. But, yeah. To your point, sprint, pin sprinkling is... I think um, looking at this list was a feature of your list. Having those dual weapon systems on multiple vehicles to be able to throw pins out on different vehicles. Um, I was assuming that was a mechanic that you were leaning into for this event. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, with with the um, armored vehicles, definitely. Um, yeah, I I would have probably made it a little bit more effective if I just put the pintle on the 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 um, M3 because um, most of the time it, I'm either shooting at one target or two, and if it goes down, I'm shooting at sevens with 18 shots. It's still doing nothing, yeah. so. Um, you know, I'm better off spreading the fire from it, which I just mm -hmm. couldn't do because I was, uh, yeah, forgot to put a pintle, <laughs> pintle on it. But um, yeah, def definitely pinning was uh, definitely part of the, the plan, yeah. Right on. Jason, uh, I asked Aaron if he had any thoughts or questions about your list. So uh, now we get to go the other way. Um, did you have any thoughts and or questions about his list? <laughs> No, no, my only thought is I like it. Um, you know, I, I'd play it. It's what's the vehicles that hunt infantry. That's what I like to do. So, yeah. yeah. And it it's infantry that aren't afraid of vehicles because mm. you had a lot of Panzerfausts on your units. Um, so there was, did you find that those were effective or again, sort of more of a deterrent than an actual weapon system against vehicles, Aaron? Um, no, they were definitely effective. I think I took out, I think I took out two vehicles, uh, with Panzerfausts. Um, I think it was a Panzer four and a, and a Stuart, another Stuart actually. So, um, I think that's a, yeah, I think they were pretty, pretty effective. Um, yeah. When I was thinking about going to the event, the list of nations that I was looking at narrowed considerably because I was thinking at 1250 points and given the vehicle rules for the event, I was thinking there would be probably more vehicles, um, more than 1250 points than anything else. So, and multiple platoons. So I was thinking, well, I could take Germans, but I'm probably going to end up taking Soviets with Panzerfaust, uh, because you know, it is such a good national, it, it's like one of those unofficial national rules, Panzerfaust, and the Soviets have it, and they are able to do wonderful things with them. So, yeah, I, I, I fully understand why you uh, why you took them in this list because, uh, especially given the point level and the dual platoons, I think they would have been invaluable. But uh, any final thoughts on your list, Aaron? Before we move on, uh, I probably. I'd probably make a fair few changes if I had my time again. But, yeah. Um, what would you change? Yeah. I'd get rid of the <laughs> artillery observer. Get a hundred points back. Um. Yeah. I don't know what I'd do with it, but I <laughs> probably probably wouldn't use that. Yeah. Do something something with it, and probably uh, upgrade the uh, officers um, to regular and give them a buddy or two. I actually find three man reg. Officer teams work quite well. Um, give them all SMGs. They jump out of a truck with a squad, and they're putting down six shots. They're definitely mm -hmm. putting down a pin and killing a few dudes at point blank range. So, I actually don't mind three man officer teams. Um, I found my officers were, apart from helping the trucks come on the table, were pretty, pretty relevant. Um, and I don't really like wasting points. So, sixty or seventy points in officers that don't do anything apart from help my dice roll to get on the table. Um, probably a bit of a liability. Um, I think get more out of officers by giving them buddies and making them regular. But, yeah. 
Now, you did not mention the heavy multi-launcher. Will you would keep that? It's fun. <laughs> it's just fun pinning yourself. I just and 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 it's there. It was there to just in case I face a twenty dice something list, um, just to give them something to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, but only shooting. Yeah, I was averaging one shot a game, which wasn't great. And uh, as I said, I, I, I killing an AT rifle um, is probably not a great return. Um, but uh, yeah, it's more like a Katusha is definitely going to be better. It can fire every turn. It can move. Um, it, it doesn't even need to start in vision. So obviously the Katusha is definitely the more optimal choice or a Nebelwerfer even. It can fire every turn. Um, but that unit's fun. And at least if it does hit something, it's going to kill it. Um, yeah, it's going to make a mess. Yeah. Hopefully it's just not an AT rifle. <laughs> I do think that that's hilarious. That of the all the things <laughs> you hit, you know, that was the one thing you actually hit and killed. That's hilarious. Yeah, one of the cheapest units in the game. <laughs> well, let's let's go back to talking about how your lists tied into the mission choice for the game, um, because again, four of them were objective based. Um, and yes, I would love to hear any criticisms or. Um, you know, things that you liked about the missions um, because we are going to be uh, updating the Bolt Action Alliance mission pack uh, later this year. And obviously Supply Drop will be in that. Plus, we always like feedback with the old missions. And Aaron, you were giving me feedback for these missions before we even went to the event. You, uh, you were reading these with a magnifying glass because I have to say, in all my years of having written missions for the Bolt Action Alliance mission pack, back when it was the .NET pack, Nobody realized that the original pack had missions that when it's saying half come on, half stay off the board, you round one way. And in second edition, it changed and you round the other way. And we, as the committee behind the missions, decided to keep the original missions rounding the version one way and the other ones doing the version two way to match the time period that those came out. So we wouldn't didn't have different versions of the same mission being played at the same event. So I am very curious to hear about your experiences in particular, Jason, you as well, obviously. Um, but let's start Aaron. What was your experience with supply drop plus the other missions? Did you enjoy them? Do you think your list worked well with them? And since you saw them in advance, did you tweak your list to match those missions? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, the fact that in, normally it sort of go a bit more balanced because you don't know what to expect with missions because they were already all there laid out for you. Um, you may as well plan for them. Um, so yeah, I think the I knew that the vehicles couldn't contest any missions, so obviously that played a part. Um, I wasn't as worried about armor ten vehicles just rolling up and sitting on an objective in the middle of the board and me not being able to do anything about it. Um, uh and i think um uh yeah the the rounding up and rounding down thing i think it would just it only really made it makes a difference of one unit either one unit starts off or one more unit starts on mm-hmm. um but if you are running a list that's an odd number it actually can throw out the dynamic and i didn't really want you know a free my free rifle squad starting off the table may never actually get on the board and see action um you know things like that so 
Mm -hmm. um, didn't want that many uh, indirect fire weapons that any of them would then have to start off the board because if they're coming on turn two, it means they're not doing anything till turn three. And, um, you know, what, what's the point of having a medium howitzer or a howitzer if it's not shooting until turn three or turn four? I didn't really want to do that. So they were probably the main considerations, but I really liked the missions. Um, they were a lot of fun. Um, I really liked Heartbreak Ridge, the first mission. That was mm -hmm. probably my favorite mission of the day. Um, I really, really liked that mission. Uh, it was just sort of like, you know, there's the one in the middle and you've got to make a decision. What, what are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to try and defend yours? And is he going to go for yours? Is he just going to go for the middle? Is he going to try and defend his? So it's very, um, it's very cat and mouse before you actually even put any units on the board. Cause you don't know what they're going to do. You don't know where you, what you're going to do. Um, I, I really, really, really enjoyed that element of heartbreak Ridge. Nice. Um, yeah, I really liked Hyper Gearage. And because you could sort of put your defensive objective where you wanted, you could sort of place it maybe behind wood or in the terrain or, um, you know, so you could sort of think about how you might defend yours, um, but you don't know quite yet how you're going to attack theirs and, or what you're going to do at the middle. So there was a I really liked Heartbreak Ridge. Um, really, really liked Heartbreak Ridge. Heartbreak Ridge and Nuts are my favorite two missions in the Bolt Action Alliance 2020 mission pack. And if you are looking for this at home and you don't know what we're talking about, please go to the Bolt Action Alliance Facebook page and look for the Bolt Action Alliance uh, 2020 mission pack. You will find Heartbreak Ridge and Nuts, I believe, was the other mission from that pack that was played mm -hmm. at CanCon. I know Tristan likes both of them. So uh, I believe he was running both of those there. And then Supply Drop is the one that will be coming out later this year. Um, I, anyone who messages the Cast Ice page, I can send you the beta rules for that, which were the ones being played at uh, CanCon this year. The final one will be out later. Uh, Jason, same question to you. Um, did the missions impact the way you listed? Um, did you like them on the day? Uh, any sneers, jeers, abuses? Uh, no, I don't think the missions changed my list hugely. I tend to play armies that are fairly generically, like, you know, free infantry squads, vehicles, support weapons. It tends to be just how I roll. Mm -hmm. um, and I just adjust the style of play to get onto objectives if that's what I need to do. Um, I, too, really enjoyed Heartbreak Ridge. I had the distinct pleasure of playing Heartbreak Ridge on the table that had Pegasus Bridge on it. At CanCon, wow, which was amazing because it put the middle objective right in the middle of the bridge. Yes, um, which was uh, enormously fun, and gave us a really interesting kind of dynamic around that game. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I, I agree with Aaron. It's actually it's a really good mission. It's just so much fun. It's just got that flow to it that makes a lot of sense and just feels good. And you know it pushes you to kind of reach out and, you know, as Aaron said, do you grab the middle? Do you go for your opponents? Um, uh, Nuts is a great mission too. Really enjoyed it. Um, supply drop I quite like. It's a lot of fun. Um, I did raise questions about supply drop myself before the event in terms of what happens if it drops on a building. Um, so possibly some clearer rules in supply drop about that. 
That's on the list um, of things good. that will be fixed. Yeah, um, I did see your. I did see that. I believe Hari put it in an FAQ at one point yeah. for the event, and I went, "That's a really good point." Uh, because Which, in all the playtest games, it hadn't landed on a building for me. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just one of those things. So thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, well, what are you thinking of? There's a lot of buildings. Sorry, go ahead, uh, Aaron. What was your question? I was going to ask what, what you're thinking of doing with it, Brad. Would it land on the building or would it go to the ground? I would say it would stop before, right before it hits the building. Um, that would be my initial thought. However, uh, I, before I actually put that in writing, I will be playtesting it. Um, whenever we get questions for any of the missions for the Bolt Action Alliance, I actually have a notebook and I write it all in. Um, and I have uh, some supply drop FAQ uh, playtest notes. Um, that's my gut reaction. Um, however, I do kind of like the idea of making people go into buildings too. So um, <laughs> I, I would think that if it's impassable terrain, it would stop before it hits it. Um, and just for clarity's sake, I would say the same thing with buildings. So uh, I do have to. I do have to playtest it. Uh, mm. Those are my initial thoughts. But again. I normally don't put those in writing slash talk about them until I actually try it myself because I like to put boots on the table. But um, yep. what do you guys think? Do you think, uh, Jason, do you think that uh, making it go in the building or do you think it should stop before it hits the building? What are your thoughts? I kind of like the idea of using the whole uh, multiple four mortar rules. To, so that way it adjusts, you know, and it might go through the roof and or it might stay on the roof. It might go deeper, that kind of thing. Uh, like just it. for just for fun's sake, yeah. Um, you know, and probably depends a bit on like you, the problem is you're writing rules for a mission, so you don't want it to be too much and too verbose. Mm -hmm. um, it's got to be up to the players to a degree. You know, if it hits the side of a castle wall or something, it's not going to obviously punch through. Right. Um, but you know, some adobe building in the middle of the desert, it could well go in. So yeah. I don't know. Tough one. Right. Again, one of those things I think we're going to have to play test. Uh, Aaron, mm. what are your thoughts? Do you think we should we should hit the building? I do like the mortar idea. I like that a lot. Mm. Uh, I think there are some interesting buildings out there. If it landed on a four-story building, no one's ever getting to that objective in four, turn, four or five turns. That'd probably be the only thing to consider, I suppose. But I think a lot of the games, you know, we're only averaging four or five turns as well. Um, so with supply drop it coming in on the fourth turn um you know you at least want turn five and turn six to be able to fight over those extra two objectives true um, probably the only thing i think that's but, true i always sort of consider games running full length when i write these missions uh but at events particularly ones over a thousand points you know you don't always get to turn five or six so that is an excellent point and one that i should consider so, well, before we jump on to talk about the running of the event, um, let's talk one last time. What were, if someone, and I was asked to ask this question, if someone was looking to quote unquote, improve the way they play bolt action to do better at a bolt action event, uh, particularly at Australia's big show. Now, as we, I said earlier, um, CanCon is a little bit more competitive than um, a lot of bolt action events in Australia. Does that mean it's not fun? Absolutely not. 
Um, people, everyone I spoke to had a great time at CanCon this year. You just need to keep that in mind when listing accordingly. Um, but it is a little different than what some people might expect. How, and given that Hari and Tristan have said that they will be running next year's, um, I would assume we'd be saying something similar. Um, I'm sure they'll tweak it um, to align with, you know, what people's feelings are and how this year went. Uh, but if people wanted to start getting prepared early, um, I know some crazy people like myself like to paint armies a year out for a big event. Um, do you have any big takeaways from this event or suggestions that you would give to people who are wanting to up their game? Uh, Jason, I'll start with you and then I'll go to Aaron. Jason, what are your thoughts? Get games in. Um, you know, you, you basically, I think bold action's a game that's played over six turns. And generally speaking, especially with larger order dice disorder, the game's finished earlier. Uh, a quick game is a good game, and you only get quick by practice. Exactly. So I think that's probably the big takeaway. Um, I suspect that there are probably people out there that lost games because it went to turn four or five and they needed those extra turns to get the game, you know, to, to for their tactics and their strategy to actually come off. Um, so, and I know I'm in that, I'm in that boat quite frequently myself. Like I need turn five and six. I have to have it. So, you know, um, so I think speed, practice speed, um, you know, play, play a bunch of different stuff, play a bunch of different um, uh, games a uh, bunch of different missions and just, yeah, practice your armies. Yeah. And as you say, and I think you were alluding to it there, play against people who have, who are playing different types of armies and have different play styles from each other. Yeah. It's one thing if you play the same two or three guys again and again and again, you'll get really good against them and the armies and the styles that they like to play. But in an event like CanCon, you're going to be seeing a much broader um, player base um, who have different experiences, have different styles, and have different army lists. So I think also games and so that you work on your force, you're able to make But also, do not want to. Am I, you think I'm talking to like yeah, I think so. I think it's it's really it's really good to play lots of different things. Like I, I mean, um, I played against a really capable player, fantastic guy, Finnish force. I just don't get to see the Finns very often. I played against Peter West with his force, and he shut down my forward um, deployers with his special rules. Bulgarians never seen mm -hmm. ne Bulgarians never seen never played a Bulgarian army before. We're yeah. sitting there going, well, uh, thankfully I didn't bring Australians this year. Uh, right so like like yeah. oh there goes my battle plan if i've got aussies <laughs> so yeah. yeah uh aaron how about you same question yeah the bulgarians caught me off guard as well uh that was that was a fun game i saw the mission and i had a plan for the mission didn't know what i was about to face and it was pete and uh he had his bulgarians and i'm like oh no <laughs> this is the only army i don't want to play on this mission um that was it was it was, a, it was a tough very tough game but uh it was good it was really good um great guy um i think the new players i think 
a lot of us have come from other systems. Like, um, you know, so we, we, we played other games and, you know, you get these ideas in your head and rules in your head and sometimes we, we mix mishmash our, our games together. Um, you know, so I think the probably the biggest thing is is reading the rule book. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's um, a great set of rules. There's... You learn a lot about a history. They put lots of little cool blurbs in there and all sorts of things. So it's definitely great to um, to read. A lot of their material is is, is a really fun read as well. Um, I think it's written, yeah, written pretty well. So I think definitely scratch up on on the rules um, is probably the the number one starting point. Um, and a lot of us have house rules as well. You know that we play at home. We might be doing certain things with certain units that you know, aren't actually in the rules. Um, and when you mm -hmm. play at an event, you probably want to both be playing the same same game um, that's in the in the rule book. So, yeah, I think um, just probably being familiar with the house rules are great. Um, but, yeah, we, we probably just touch up with the rules, I think, is, is a really good one. And trying new units, um, just try, mm -hmm. building a balanced list and, seeing what a mortar does, seeing what a sniper does, seeing what an any tank team does, seeing what armored cars do, seeing what howitzers do, all that kind of thing, I think um, is going to help. So there's a lot of rock, paper, scissors, um, and working out what the rocks and papers and scissors all mm -hmm. do to each other I think is um, a really good uh, starting point. Yeah, 100%. Mm. Jason, would you agree with that? Yeah, well, yeah, yes, I would. And I would probably add, uh, learn not to rely on one or two units. So mm -hmm. uh, probably the difference between a good bold action player and a great bold action player is the great players don't, like if they lose their tank, it's like, meh, okay, I'll go off yeah. and do something else with these other things. So, yeah. you know, it's it's learning that you, you're not building an army around one or two order dice. You're building, a, you're building an army. So. Exactly. And it's, I think it also comes down to just to lean into something you said there, um, staying calm when something goes wrong. Uh, it's really easy to feel like you've stepped in quicksand if a couple things go wrong. And in bolt action, they do. Bolt action happens. You know, they're, all of a sudden your opponent gets five order dice in a row and you really needed one. Or, you know, you don't hit with a unit even though you have a really good chance to. Uh, and you really need to like those, those things happen in bolt action. Your unit with one pin, the, you know, veteran unit with one pin needs to get to an objective and it doesn't happen. It can feel really bad. Um, especially when a couple of those things happen in a row, but luck and probability comes and goes in this game in a way that it, more so than in other games in my experience. And so for me, I often see the people who do well, don't let those swings and roundabouts necessarily derail their cool. You know, yeah, their game plan might go out the window, but then as you were saying, Jason, to be able to then go, you know what? How am I going to adapt to this situation? Mm. How can I move forward? Knowing full well that that luck will change, and it does, I think is huge in this game. Um, and because it's, it's really easy to, you know, get hot and bothered about you know things not going your way and then you start to make tactical mistakes um would you guys agree with that yep 
Yeah, def definitely. Yep. Yeah. Plan B, plan C. Mm hmm. Yeah. Plan F, plan Z. <laughs> plan F. Yeah. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, I guess that's yeah. how this works. Um, well, let's let's jump over um, because I do want to mention a couple of things that I don't think I've mentioned. I've mentioned that CanCon went well running wise, um, but I've spoken to a few people now, as I said, who have contacted the page talking about their experiences at CanCon this year. And universally, people have said the same things um, that CanCon was a chill, relaxed. People had a good time playing. It wasn't cutthroat. Um but more to the point, the TOs ran things to time. Um, nothing got pushed back. Uh, everything was really well organized. There was a massive um, prize pool that they had pulled together. And, um, you know, when rules clarifications were necessary, they came over and they made sure that they understood both sides of the situation and they did their best to make that that set of or made those decisions um, in a way that was fair for everyone and would be consistently used across the event. Um, I have to take off my hat. It sounds like um, Hari and Tristan did a bang up job running this event. Um, they had extra people helping them. I know Anthony was there wearing the old bolt action.net TO helmet. And I think they had other people helping as well. So there was just, they had the staff to, accommodate such a big event and they'd done the homework to make sure it was done right. Um, not to mention they were, you know, really proactive in making sure that they kept to their t round timings, which meant that things didn't get pushed back later. Um, I, it just looked like a really professionally run event. Um, Jason, I'll start with you. Was, was that your impression of this? Did you think, what were your thoughts about the way the event was run? Yeah, no, the guys did really, really well. So, I mean, I've played in a lot of different events mm -hmm. in the last however many decades. Um, and, no, they did a great job. Like, hats off to them. Um, you know, it was well run, uh, well organized. Um, and, yeah, look, and, yes, they promoted that relaxed feeling, which was really good. So, no, absolutely adored what they did. Brilliant. Uh, Aaron? Yeah, no, they this is fantastic. Um, really direct. They were straight to the point. Everyone knew what they were doing the first 10 minutes before we started round one. It was, you know, um, I think even one point, you know how loud it can get in there. Mm -hmm. um, and TOs trying to talk to 60 people all at once um, can be really difficult. Not everyone has an outside voice. So um, I think at one point they split us into two groups of 30 just to talk about um you know the something i can't even remember what it was but it was something to oh, was, organization terrain or pack up or something wasn't it no it was the round score sheets they just wanted oh, to that's right. set yeah. points on yeah yeah so that was that was really good they were just super organized um more hands on deck probably really helped with that and, but they did a fantastic uh fantastic job yeah really good it it was a wonderful way for the Australian bolt action community to come together. And it did come together. We had 58 players from all over the place playing in this event. Yes, there were some local players, but there were players from all sorts of different parts of Australia playing. Um, but it was also wonderful to have um, not only war and peace present on site being so 
such prolific and longtime supporters of the the bolt action community down here being the local distributors of warlord games but war and peace have been supporting us for years and they really i mean they were present uh at the at the big show and i know running up to the event um having spoken to them while running my own events and talking about you know how to record with hari um the advertising event for cancon running up to the event just how involved war and peace were in you know the success uh, of how cancon ran this year and especially so that warlord itself sent um one of their big wigs down steve morgan who's the head of their trade sales department was present at cancon he was not only there meeting people hanging out at the war and peace store for a good chunk of the weekend he was walking around the bolt action event meeting people and having a great time as well to have that representation um, at Australia's big show is awesome. It really does show that how Warlord is going out of their way to support local events now. Um, we've talked about on this show how Warlord has a new um, prize and event support program uh, for events in Australia, Australia-wide of all sizes from small to big. Um, and if you are a TO and you are running an event, even if it's nowhere near the size of CanCon. You should reach out to War and Peace Games and talk to them about how the Warlord support structure can help you run your event. And again, to see the community come together and to have Warlord and War and Peace at CanCon, I think, especially when it was the success it was, is just amazing to see. And yeah. I, as a longtime member of the Bolt Action community, it was wonderful. Um, Aaron, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, it was really good. And they did, they did a fantastic job. Um, I think, uh, yeah, reach out to them. We want to definitely want to grow it. I think CanCon's going to look even bigger and better next year by the sounds of things. And there's a lot of people um, talking positively about it afterwards. And as far as running your own event, definitely get it up and going um reach out reach out to guys like yourself brad um you know you man can write a mission so um you know don't be afraid to use some different missions in there mix it up um but yeah reach out don't be afraid to reach out to people and um, ask them for tips and how they ran their event and um yeah i'm sure that uh, this bold action community seems really good like that helping out and jumping in if you've got a question people will jump to to answer so i'm sure the help will be the same exactly and thank you <laughs> i appreciate it uh jason what do you think oh uh, look you know um ian from war and peace has just always been there and he's always been a good supporter right uh like you know i ran my first event in bold action years ago and he supported that which was fantastic like it's just it's just a staple of the community and i like to see that the community gives back to to ian um and sean that works for ian now of course is brilliant too like he mm -hmm. really knows his stuff uh like he knows his stuff back to front it was really good to see warlord there like getting to have a bit of a conversation with the warlord guy and he's like what would you change in the game and i'm like well it was you <laughs> have <laughs> yes <laughs> well, no, you don't really need a pen. There's not that many things. It's a really good game, right? But, right. Um, but you know, there's a couple of things. Um, was it was just really good to see that 
to to actually have that direct involvement with yeah. um with warlord i think uh generally speaking i i think the um bold action community in terms of tabletop gaming i've always found it hands down to be the best of the tabletop communities i've ever seen and i don't know if you're aware of this or not brad i used to run a game store so i've seen a few tabletop communities so yeah and there are some winners out there mm -hmm. yeah. yeah but no no look bob is just great it's a good bunch of guys so it is yeah man i couldn't agree more well, gentlemen, I, I think our time has sadly come to a close, but thank you so much for coming on today. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak uh, about your list and to talk about the event that was. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this, uh, please do look into the 2024 CanCon Bolt Action event. Um, also, look for the Bolt Action, sorry, the Bacon Burgers episode where they talk about the meta. Uh, I'm not sure when that's coming. Uh, I know they've been very busy recently. I'm assuming it'll be in the pipe soon. Um, but for everyone listening today uh, and for those who wrote into the page in particular, thank you so much for taking the time. It, I'm literally doing this episode with these guests because of the requests from you, the listener. And there were a lot of requests um, for, to discuss different elements of the CanCon event. And I think we did a pretty decent job of uh, touching all the talking points that people sent in. Uh, if we've missed something or if you would like me to discuss other events moving forward, uh, please do contact the Cast Dice Facebook page, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. You are guaranteed a response by me. My name's Brad. Hi. Um, if you would like to see the pictures of the terrain for this event, you can find this episode. And over the course of this episode, we not only um, show the army list while we talked about them, but we also had the list of the rules um, while we referenced them. And we had uh, a picture of literally every single table from CanCon on the video as part of this discussion. Or you could just go to the Bolt Action Australia Facebook page. And Hari did post a picture of all of the tables. And spoilers, that's where I got my photos. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, as our good buddy Casey always says, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope that your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Ice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.